the good old Grateful Dead cast, the official podcast of the Grateful Dead. I'm Rich Mahan with Jesse Jarno, exploring the music and legacy of the Grateful Dead for the committed and the curious. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow deadheads, welcome to season six of the good old Grateful Dead cast. I'm your co-host, Rich Mahan. As always, thank you very much for tuning in. In this episode, we have yet another celebration, this one lighting 75 candles for the one and only Bobby Weir. Head on over to dead.net slash deadcast and check out all of our past episodes, including the complete seasons one through five, and you can link from there to your favorite podcasting platforms so you can listen where you like to listen. Please help this deadcast by subscribing, hitting that like button, and if the spirit moves you, leave us a review. Very kind of you. Thank you very much. Have you checked out the transcripts we now have available for many of the episodes in seasons one through five? Head over to dead.net slash deadcast dash index and click the transcript link on the episode you'd like to explore. Well, speaking of Bobby Ace, just announced is the 50th anniversary deluxe edition of Bobby Weir's first solo album. And there are a few configurations you need to know about. For this new collection, Bobby remixed the original album, and he pairs that with a new live version by Bobby Weir and Wolf Brothers, recorded earlier this year at Radio City Music Hall, featuring the Wolf Pack, with special guests Tyler Childers and Brittany Spencer. Our own Jesse Jarno even wrote the liner notes. There will be a two-CD version, as well as a custom high-roller pearl-white vinyl release, available exclusively from Dead.net, both with a release date of January 13th, 2023. A black vinyl version will follow on February 3rd. You can pre-order any and all of the Ace releases and some cool Ace merch over at Dead.net. Thanks to everyone who has left their stories over at stories.dead.net. We are now asking you to share your stories of serendipity, miracles, and the most unbelievable, craziest stories ever told. Share those stories at stories.dead.net, and you just may hear yourself on the Deadcast. Well, the Grateful Dead returned to cinemas worldwide for the 2022 Meetup at the Movies, this year features the previously unreleased concert film from April 17, 1972, captured at the Tivoli Concert Hall in Copenhagen, Denmark. Join us to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Dead's legendary Europe 72 tour with this epic show in cinemas for two nights only on November 1st and November 5th. Tickets are on sale at meetupatthemovies.com. What would our musical world be like without Bobby Weir? In this episode, we celebrate all things Bobby as he celebrates his 75th birthday. Rather than looking back, in this episode, we will focus more on what Bobby's doing now and how he got where he is today. Let's hand this baton over to conductor Jesse Jarno. understand how it happened either, but this month we wish Bobby Weir a happy, heady, and healthy 75th birthday. Like a lot of things in the Grateful Dead world, it came on pretty gradually. The Dead continued to change each and every time they stepped onto a stage, 
and we spent a few recent episodes of the Deadcast going into the subtle and not subtle shadings of the Dead's music between 1981, 1982, and 1983. And though the Grateful Dead officially disbanded in 1995, it was never in question that Bobby Weir would continue that mission, continuing to change every single year and then change some more. Today, to honor Bobby Weir's 75th, we're not going to so much offer a career overview as go deeply into what Bobby Weir is doing now at 75 and how he got here. First thing I remember knowing was a lonesome whistle flowing and the young and street was growing upright. On the freight train leaving town, not knowing where I was bound, no one was steering right but mama tried. That was from the brand new album, Live in Colorado, Volume 2, by Bobby Weir and the Wolf Brothers. The second of three new releases from Bobby and Co. featuring his expanded Wolf Pack. That is, counting the live disc of Ace 50 coming in January, but not counting the concerto that Weir just debuted with the National Symphony Orchestra this October, and which will perhaps be coming to a classical venue near you sometime soon. Perhaps the most ambitious project of Weir's entire career. things told, it's been pretty busy in Weirland, even without discussing how Dude got so ripped. So we've got a bunch of friends to catch us up. In addition to birthday boy Bob Weir, we have with us on this episode a few of his lycanthropic conspirators. Jeff Comenti has been playing with Weir since 1997. Welcome to the Deadcast, Jeff. Between, you know, the orchestra stuff and the new Wolf Brothers with Wolfpack, I mean, this uh, man's been on a mission. Well, he definitely doesn't like to sit still. As we were putting this episode together, the band was getting ready for their Kennedy Center debut with the National Symphony Orchestra. Please also welcome to the Deadcast, Don Was. We were practicing last week. I might have been what we were doing playing in the band, in fact, but I was just thinking he never, when he was 20, could have imagined (laughs) he'd be 75 and playing these things with the National Symphony Orchestra. And that it would work, that the songs would have the gravitas to endure for decades and to be treated in such a different fashion and still resonate. The idea of combining Grateful Dead music with an orchestra has been around for a long time. Robert Hunter's lyric, Truckin' Up to Buffalo, refers to the first stop of the band's spring tour in 1970, where Hunter joined the group on the road. There, the dead performed with the Buffalo Philharmonic under the direction of influential composer Lucas Foss, Bobby Weir. That was illuminating. That uh, that uh, I don't remember all that much of what we were doing, what we did with them, but we got these little Fender amplifiers, got them special for the gig. Uh, they were a little Fender Princeton reverbs, and they're they basically they're uh, they're practice amps, and they're still way 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 too loud for a symphony orchestra. 
If you turn it up to uh, where you're actually getting some tone out of it, it's, it's way too loud. In part because Owsley Stanley had been busted with the dead six weeks earlier in New Orleans and confined to California, there are no recordings of the Grateful Dead's first and only attempt to play with an orchestra. Dead scholars have assembled a fair bit of coverage of the event, which we've posted links to at dead.net slash deadcast. Though the event wasn't successful enough to repeat, classical and orchestral music continued to hover around the Dead's music for years. Classically trained bassist Phil Lesh often spoke of creating orchestral music around Dead motifs. The very first performance by the surviving members of the Dead, following Jerry Garcia's death, was at the San Francisco Symphony, performing Space for Henry Cowell with conductor Michael Tilson Thomas. But when we spoke with Bobby and the Wolf Bros, it wasn't just a one-off Kennedy-centered gig that they were getting ready for. He's looking to change music with this. And those ambitions are the theme of today's episode. And though there's absolutely a through line between the dead working with Lucas Foss in 1970, their surviving members working with Michael Tilson Thomas in 1996, and we are working with the National Symphony Orchestra in 2022, you might be shocked to learn that it's zagging and once again, not completely linear. How did Bobby Weir go from being the 17-year-old fresh-faced guitarist in the Warlocks to headlining the Kennedy Center? In a way, it kind of starts with the coasters. I'm a hard fight, babe. Can't get enough of your love. In September 1965, the young band The Warlocks was booked into the in-room in Belmont, just north of Menlo Park, playing five sets a night, six nights a week. Early in the run, for the first set every night, they served as backing band for Cornell Gunter, leading a version of the Coasters, who also brought a rhythm guitarist named Terry. According to Dennis McNally's Long Strange Trip, Weir watched Terry so closely that he not only learned the chords, but absorbed unconsciously how to cue a band with the neck of his guitar as a baton. It was an important vocabulary lesson of sorts. The first piece of a language Weir is now speaking with the National Symphony Orchestra. One little piggy ate a pizza. Yeah. One piggy ate potato chips. Yeah. But this little pig is coming over your house. He's gonna nibble on your sweet lips. Cause I'm a pop-pipe babe. By the time Weir recorded his solo debut, Ace, in February 1972, which we discussed at length in our last episode, he had enough of his own songs to alternate with Jerry Garcia and Pigpen. When Pigpen stopped touring with the band that year, the Dead shows became structured around Garcia and Weir alternating song picks. Ace was also the first time Weir directed a session, which included not only his bandmates in the Dead, who acted as backing musicians, but horns on a few tunes, and a string section on Looks Like Rain. To repeat a short bit from last time.
I remember the guy who did the string arrangement, the, I brought him in, and he got a little too busy for me. I just had it in my head that this, this song needs strings. If I had really bothered to uh, take the time to listen to what, what Jerry was doing on the pedal steel, it didn't need strings. Because he was doing that. He was covering that sustained, uh, the sustained, uh, but I was young and uh, and uh, young and brash and, and uh, I wanted strings and by God, I was going to have strings. We would muse about playing more with strings and brass for years, but it would take a while to get there. As we've said, Weir does things gradually, seen or heard in time lapse. It took a little bit of time for Weir's ambitions to emerge and find shape. During the Dead's road hiatus in 1975, he took up with Kingfish, who released a self-titled album on Round Records the next year. There's fog up on the mountain, frost is clinging to the ground. Days keep getting shorter, you know the winter's coming round. This sure ain't the promised Heaven Help the Fool, Weir's next proper solo album, was recorded with Fleetwood Mac producer Keith Olsen in summer 1977, a half decade after Ace, and released in early promote it, he assembled the Bob Weir Band, featuring a new keyboardist, formerly of the band Silver, named Brent Midland, who was shortly drafted into the dead. In 1980, with the addition of drummer Billy Cobham, they became Bobby and the Midnights, who recorded a pair of albums in the early 80s. From 1984 through 1987, Weir occasionally played with a revived lineup of Kingfish, and in 1987 with Brent Midland and Bill Kreutzmann and Go Ahead. But it was during the 1980s that Weir really started to brand from his immediate dead family, playing in a variety of situations with a broad variety of partners. The heads at Jerry Bass have done an extraordinary job mapping the varied world around Jerry Garcia, but I hope that a group of Weir scholars endeavors to do the same someday with the junior dead guitarist. And it was in 1988 that Bobby Weir found his longest-term musical relationship outside the dead. What fixation feeds this fever As the full moon pales and climbs Am I living truth or act deceiver? Am I the victim or the crime? Am I the victim or the crime? Am I the victim or the crime? Or the crime? In 1988, Weir began to tour with bassist Rob Wasserman. That was from their archival album, simply called Live, recorded mostly during their first tours together. Wasserman would pass away in 2016, 
but would provide a cosmic bridge to the topics of today's episode. In this era, Weir's musical world blossomed. If you're drawing maps of the Bobbyverse and how it connects to other musicians, consider this 1989 performance on the NBC television show Night Music, where eclectic music producer Hal Wilmer paired Weir and Wasserman with Screamin' Jay Hawkins and underground New York art weirdos Bongwater, featuring original Yola Tango member Dave Rick, plus the vocal group The Pussy Willows, to perform, naturally, You Don't Love Me Yet by the 13th Floor Elevators. Not that this random late-night appearance is indicative of Weir's musical direction, so much as his increased willingness to throw himself into one new adventure after another, far away from his Grateful Dead comfort zone. By 1995, Weir and Wasserman expanded into a filled-out band with drummer Jay Lane and Weir's old Kingfish friend Matt Kelly. They launched their first tour as the Rat Dog Review on August 6, 1995, just three days before Jerry Garcia's death. Shortened to Rat Dog, the band continued for the next 15 years, taking a break while we are focused on further, before resuming for a final run from 2012 to 2014. They recorded one studio album, Evening Moods, in 2000. This is Two Gin. Out on the road to West Maria In a cloud of dust I met Two Gin One was bright as pride It was through bassist Rob Wasserman that Weir met another bassist. In the early 80s, Don Wass came into the national ear as bassist in the Detroit band Wass Not Was. That blossomed into a career as an in-demand Grammy-winning producer, working with Bonnie Rayet, the Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, Willie Nelson, Roy Orbison, Lucinda Williams, and a pretty bow-tie-spinning discography of others. In the like early in 1990, Rob Wasserman introduced us. Uh, Rob invited me to breakfast with him and Bobby when they were playing in Pasadena as a, as Rob and Bob. Right? Then later that year. We all jammed together at uh, an event in Mill Valley during the film festival, which is a, a tribute to Hal Wilner, which is a really eclectic night, man. It was, I don't remember a lot of it. And what I remember comes mostly from Blakesburg's pictures of it, right? <laughs> it was like Marianne Faithful and Sid Straw and Todd Rundgren, uh, Guido Sarducci and Garth Hudson and Bobby and, and Wasserman and Michelle shocked. I, I I don't remember everybody who was on the the gig, but we we played in different combinations. And then you know, jump ahead twenty five years, when I when I started working at Blue Note, uh, Bobby called me up about releasing some of the TRI stuff, some of the, the some of his solo things, and he and Mickey came to see me about both of their solo things. And my the off, Blue Note offices are at uh, Capitol Tower. Oh, right. And in 2012, he became the head of Blue Note Records. 
Don Wass's first gig with Weir is what used to be called A&R. He put a band together. But in true dead fashion, it was completely accidental, and it wasn't for the label he works for. And downstairs in Capitol Studios, John Mayer was working. And from having made a couple albums with him already at that point, I knew that he was like a huge deadhead. I mean, he was a deadhead to the extent that every time we got in his car, the Grateful Dead, you know, the Sirius channel was on. And he could identify not not just the year, but maybe even the tour. <laughs> just by listening to the music. I mean, he really knew the shit. So I called him up in the studio. I said, man, you got to get in the elevator and come up here. You won't believe who's in the office. And and that's how they met. And in the office there, the plan for Dead & Company was kind of hatched. And John and I drove up there you know, a month or two later. And uh, that was the birth of Dead & Company. But it's one thing for a producer to put a band together. It's another to actually hit the road. And we just stayed in touch. He called me, he called me like in 2018, and he said he had a dream that Rob Wasserman came to him in the stream from the other world, from the other side. <laughs> and he said, you know, the reason I introduced you to, to Don in uh, 1990 was because when I'm gone, he's supposed to be your bass player. So Bobby called me out of nowhere and said, he even had, he even had the name of the band. They said it's supposed to be, it was all from this one dream. It was, it was supposed to be called the Wolf Brothers and it was supposed to be a trio with him and me and Jay. So he said, you want to do it? And I was like, fuck yeah. <laughs> so I asked him for six songs and I, I went to, I checked into the Bowery Hotel in New York and I just woodshedded these six songs for a week. Nothing, man. I closed everything off. All I did was sit in the hotel room and play. Then I went to San Francisco and, uh, we didn't do any of the six songs, of course. <laughs> but we just we just started jamming on like an A minor chord. And in the first minute and a half, I could tell that Jay and I felt the groove in the same place, which doesn't happen very often, you know, that you get that kind of a, a lock with somebody. And it was the kind of groove that it allowed Bobby, it propelled Bobby and his playing, but it also allowed him to phrase things and didn't get in his way. So we played for about 20 minutes and he called up the managers and he just said, book a tour. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> we'll be dotting this part of the conversation with some music from the Trio Wolf Brothers, recorded over a few shows in February 2020 at Sweetwater in Mill Valley. The rap jack, you've got nothing new to say. Will you, if you please, don't back up the track? This train's got to run today. We spent a little time on the mountain, spent a little time on the hill. Heard some say, better run away. The one thing you can go to a show and expect that you will get for sure is that if we, whatever happened the time before, it will not happen again. <laughs> that's to me, that's at the core musically of what the dead are doing, which is very similar to 
is what makes it so similar to jazz in its intention, which is that you have you start with beginner's mind every time you play the fucking song. I can be sure that Jay's going to change the bass drum beat. He's going to play what he's feeling that night from any number of influences, not the least of which is you know what Bobby's playing. So that's why we kind of just we don't we ease into songs. We don't go blasting into anything. You don't know where it's going to land. You wait till it lands on something, and then all right, we can we can build off of this foundation, and and then you start. I have seen where the wolf has slept by the silver stream, and I can tell by the mark he left you were in his dream. I tried to count this tree. Child found the sea. What you are, what you meant to be. Speaks his name, though you were born to me. Born to me, Cassidy. Bobby, in his heart, believes that people are there to hear the songs. And he wants to inhabit those songs honestly. Every night, he's a storyteller, and he does, and he gets in. He becomes the characters who are the protagonist of every song, uh, or not not necessarily the protagonist, but the speak, the narrator in every song. He's he he becomes that, and like any great artist, that means you do it differently every time. So, but he's got to have the freedom to phrase a line the way he wants to. There's on the river. That was February 15th, 2020, a night Jeff Comenti sat in. The other singers, the great, my favorite singers are people like, like Willie Nelson or Bonnie Raitt or Frank Sinatra. Did you ever try to sing along to a Frank Sinatra record? No, no, no matter next time you're driving, sing along to that's life or something. <laughs> and you will find no matter how far back you try to pull the phrasing, he's behind you, man. And you just think it's impossible. He's so far back. He's going to fall off of the song or like with Willie Nelson, man, it's playing live with him is, is such an exciting thing because if you just go with where you think he is rhythmically in the song, you're fucked. You got it. You have to have really strong internal time because he pulls that phrase so far back, like little Jimmy Scott or someone like that, that it lands into the next line and he'll run two lines together, but it's super expressive. And Bobby's the same thing. If you, if you just isolated Bobby's vocals and can, and if you can really hear him, he's totally in there every night, man, you know, but sometimes things get in the way. And if, if the musicians are laying down too strong a grid, you could, and it sounds like you're fighting Bobby's phrasing, then it makes then Bobby doesn't sound good because the grid, the, the beat is the beat. Why can't he sing in rhythm? No, man, don't play so fucking much and let it give him room to phrase. So that's the general directive. Well, I'm down the Baton Rouge, Queen, go along. 
Plots that woman down to New Orleans, New Orleans. I give up, cause I've had enough. Go dump my booze on down the car. She loves you, Big River, more than me. Talk that weeping willow, I did cry, cry, cry. Talk the clouds and cover up a clear blue sky. Tears and cry for that woman, yeah, gonna flood you, Big River. The job also set up Don for a pretty incredible music-related pun. I would say for the first year and a half, I was haunted by what I called the Phil Specter, which is the specter of Phil Lesh, which is... <laughs> um, he's, a, he's a total bass genius, man. You know, nobody plays like him, and I don't know how he came up with those parts, but it's... I. It's not the the way my mind works, which which I which I think is why Bobby hired me for Wolf Brothers because what I'm doing is a little more prosaic. I'm not playing. I'm not weaving guitar lines against Bobby's guitar lines. Um, I'm holding down. Uh, it's not even necessarily the tonic, but I'm holding down a note, and it's about tone too. It's about having a, a round, warm sound that that surrounds his voice, but I'm not playing like Phil, but, but I felt I had to, <laughs> I was, I really, you know, I came out to, you know, I'm a, I'm a stranger in to this audience and I'm not playing the same stuff they're used to hearing. And I was haunted by that. And it made me play too much. Don's not making a wall of sound of either the Lesh or Spectre varieties, but holding open space for weir to weir. We spoke with pedal steel player Barry Sless from the Expanded Wolfpack, and Don's intent rumbled through warm and clear. Don is just super solid and super supportive. He's not trying to do anything fancy. He's actually a lot of the times seeming to me, and from hearing some of the things that he said, looking for just the, the simplest way to support the songs and support Bob's vocal and make the song come across. And a lot of times he finds that, you know, he might go, hey, if I just play one quarter note over this, instead of playing a line there, I feel like it makes his vocal come out better and, and make the song speak better. And he's a record producer, too. So I think he's coming from that space uh, in the way that he plays and into really making sure that the song speaks. The trio, I viewed it like it was so quiet and there was so much space in it that I felt like, okay, this is like a folk concert at Carnegie Hall in 1960. You know, if you were back in Judy Collins or Harry Belafonte or something like that at Carnegie Hall, but, uh, there were bass players on the thing. There was a bass player with Peter, Paul, and Mary who played real simple stuff, but it was intimate. And I thought the trio, if you love Bobby, man, it was like being in the living room with him. It was really intimate, and, and you could really hear his guitar playing unencumbered and hear how he's telling stories with, with, with the vocal. You could appreciate his storytelling. His guitar playing is, it's like no one plays like that. It's, it's, it's the most radical approach to rock and roll guitar like that I know of, really. Uh, it's certainly, and it's super interesting. It's, it's brilliant and it's inspiring. Got you 
for people who aren't musicians, I would say that playing in a band is like being in a conversation. You listen and you say something and people respond. And now you can go to a party and there may be conversations that, that bore you. I used to have to go to a lot of parties. You know, I got three grown kids now, but I can't tell you how many parties I was at where parents were saying, Oh, you know, we we just applied to USC and blah, blah. <laughs> you want to slit your wrists at these parties. You're getting some conversations that you just don't want to be in, right? But then maybe at that same party, you get to the back of the room and Noam Chomsky is there. <laughs> and he's saying stuff that'll blow your mind, that you never get to read in the newspaper, that you never hear on CNN, and that will change your whole approach to how you think. Bobby is the Noam Chomsky of the guitar. <laughs> He's that guy at the party who will blow your mind and say, whoa, it opens up so many new possibilities for playing if you, if you just listen to him. Jerry Garcia made some observations about Weir's guitar playing that resonate pretty strongly with Don's comments. These bits are from David Gans and Blair Jackson's interviews from 1981, reprinted in Conversations with the Dead. We've linked, of course, at dead.net slash deadcast. Thanks, David. Well, on the guitar, he's caught to uh, haven't been influenced by people, but I can't hear it. You know, I mean, I can't hear it in his playing. I, I know that he thinks it, it's true, but I, really, I swear to God I can't hear it. I mean, he says he's been influenced a lot by, like, Pete Townsend, you know. And oh, I yeah. Can, yeah, I can't hear it. <laughs> I mean, you know, I can't say as I do. Either. Yeah, I mean, and he's, you know, and a couple of other people too. It's yeah. one of those things that you don't, you'd have to be weird to understand exactly what he meant, you know, or yeah. to have followed the evolutionary path that he's followed. There are ideas that weird has that I would never have had, you know, that, that, and in fact, maybe only he has, and that's like his unique value, which is he's an extraordinarily original player, you know, in a world full of people who sound like each other, you know. I mean, really, he has really got a style that's, that's totally unique as far as I know. I don't know anybody else that plays the guitar the way he does, that, with the kind of approach that he has to it. And, and it's, that in itself is, I think, really a score, considering how derivative almost all electric guitar playing is. I hear that in my influences, you know, to some extent, in myself. And with Weir, I, uh, I have a real hard time recognizing any influences in his playing, you know, I mean, that I could put my finger on and say, well, that's something that Weir got from X and such, even though I've been there along for almost all of his musical development, you know what I mean? I didn't play with him since he was 16 or 17. Does he hide it well? Or I just don't know where he gets it, you know, I have no idea where he gets he it. He does either. listen to other things. Sure, he listens to, he listens to an awful lot of stuff. He really, he stay, he keeps up more than anybody, I think, probably in the band. Probably. He seemed to have a ton of records at his house. Yeah, he does a lot of, uh, he does an awful lot of listening. And, but he doesn't do much stealing. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, out and out kind of stealing. He's like, he, his ideas are... He's are, cagey. Yeah, they are. He is cagey. He is, he's an interesting player. He really is. A, it's interesting to play with him. He, he, uh, he, and he and I have worked together and, and have discussed our relationship, our... Uh, you know, guitaristically, you know, musically together so much uh, that uh, just there's a lot of, uh, of our playing together, which is, I mean, it, it ends up being, you know, ha having an interesting uh, complementary quality to it, you know, because we're, we're both so different from each other. Mm -hmm. It's neat. It makes it fun. When he's 
back in Jerry or, or John or someone, well, when they're doing something that's specifically a solo, he's it's almost like a hype man in a hip hop group. <laughs> he's he's shouting things that encourage the guy to go forward, and he's feeding all kinds of. He's very sophisticated harmonically, you know. I, he does no modes and scales and that kind of thing. He he's got he's got knowledge of music theory, and he's feeding you stuff that you can play off of. Don, it was a wondrous new world in many ways. I wasn't coming in with a lot of preconceived notions. I think that was refreshing for Bobby. And the whole thing really kind of blew my mind. I wasn't quite prepared for it. I, I, first, the, the, the most incredible thing is the exchange of energy with the audience. It's a hand-me-down. The thoughts are broken. Perhaps they're better They've done some But I don't know Don't really care Let there be some To fill the air The audience is really unique the audience, I can see their faces, man. I can see what they respond to. I see them reacting to songs for me. The nights that we get to play Ripple as an encore, which is like every four or five nights, when I, I see the the audience, I see you know people hugging each other and crying and all singing along. And I, I get, I still, after all this time, I still get choked up every single time by how how much that means to people. You can see it a little bit with the Rolling Stones. I don't even know how many Rolling Stones shows I've been to, but you experience that, but not on that level as a, as a Grateful Dead audience. But then the pandemic hit, and the road closed itself to what was essentially still a new band. A lot of people who were able to stay home during the lockdown took on new projects. Some people learned to bake bread or knit. We started a podcast. Bobby Weir worked on his long game to change music. During COVID, we couldn't get out and play. But we were going nuts. So I used to drive up there like every other weekend. we just jam, just to play, just to keep our fingers moving. we go to TRI. And... At some point, it was like, well, let's invite Jeff to come play. You know, let, let's do something a little different. And then Jeff came and played, and it felt great. It was like really great, man. You know, because 
the conversation between Bobby and Jeff and Jay has got some deep history to it. And they really, they go in real deep together, the three of them. That elevated the game considerably. Jeff Comenti jumped from the Bay Area jazz scene into Rat Dog in 1997 and has played with Weir in numerous projects since, including Further, The Dead, and the 50th anniversary Fare Thee Well shows. His musical papers surely contain a deep meta-history of Weir's career. Getting into Rat Dog and so forth and moving on into The Dead and all through the years, I was constantly writing charts and as the repertoire expanded. But I got a couple of healthy-sized books of charts. And I just keep with me just in case, you know, because sometimes you haven't played something for a long time. So let me take a little look at this again real quick. And But obviously, you've internalized pretty much all of it. So that frees it up even more for improvising or whatever. I mean, it's just like you can kind of forget about, like, having your face buried into music and let the ears take over. Well, I was definitely going to re- recordings and stuff, and then a lot of times I had to figure out, okay, which recording do I reference? Because things always change, too. Or it could be a combination of, to say if I was listening to one song and then try to find like four different versions of it and then see what's going on and then pull pull that stuff out, pull that stuff out, see where, you know, are we still living here or not? Or, you know, because stuff, stuff had changed. Coming back to play with Weir, he discovered Bobby had some new moves. Was it just him, Don, and Jay? He had to cover a lot of ground. So it's just, I think it really expanded. I mean, he's just got this whole new vocabulary going on and it's really, it's really cool to, you know, watch happen and hear happen and bob likes to view this as you know he wants he wants to be like an old r&b soul band an old r&b soul band with a pedal steel guitar player yeah (laughs) he's got to have a twist i mean and then we were trying to think of another instrument didn't want to do the regular formula but pedal still seemed cool and we called greg lease started coming up and jam but it was just a jam and then we thought man this is really good when we do some live streams from here and so we did this series of live streams pedal steel guitar player greg lease is one of those names that shows up everywhere once you start looking at album credits i recommend his work with jazz titan bill frizzell i'm an enormous fan of the pedal steel guitar and think it's a brilliant decision to have a pedal steel be the only other guitar in a band with weir carrying a flavor of jerry garcia's playing while rarely locked into signature parts Especially in this 10-piece configuration, there's a lot going on. So much of the time, there is no soloist, per se, even though people, if you listen to their isolated tracks, you'd say, oh, that's a pedal steel solo. Oh, oh, wait, Jeff's playing a solo on the piano. But it's just lively conversation. (laughs) Uh, So it becomes a little more... The, the lines become blurred. When the band hit the road in summer 2021, resulting in the two Live in Colorado albums, Lease was replaced by Barry Sless, who's been playing on and off for years with David Nelson, Phil Lesh, and many others. He took up the pedal steel in the mid-90s. The year 2009 And before the killing was done His inheritance was mine I started playing like uh, with David Nelson Band or around that time, which would have been like 1994. There was some guys that were using effects like Sneaky Pete 
used to use like some phase shifting and phasing on his pedal steel and some distortion. So I had heard some of his outside of the box playing. So maybe that might've given me a little idea like, hey, you know, there's potential here to get outside of the box. Jeff Comenti. Barry's been killing it, and, you know, and, Gr- and Greg as well prior. You know, I mean, it was just so was blessed to be able to play with those two guys on pedal steel. Or even if they are playing the signature parts, it's going to have a little bit of a different twist to it because, you know, just the nature of the instrument. But at the same time, yes, it can be very solo-oriented. It could be very rhythmic-oriented. Yet it also could be like this giant, like, puffy cloud pad, you know, that you can't really achieve on any other instrument. A lot of times I'm trying to not make it like obviously sound like a a pedal steel like you might expect in a country song or something like that and trying to play it in in different ways that fit the song and then like every now and then like jeff or jay will like uh hey can you cop this like jerry part on the pedal steel that's kind of the line that he plays in this song so uh there's some of that also where i'm listening trying to figure out some of those uh signature underlying parts for some of the songs that nobody else is playing. We'd be out on tour and we'd be doing a sound check on a song and he was like, one of them would be like, hey, can you cut this this Jerry line here? I can't remember, maybe uh, like Music Never Stopped might have been one of them. It gives me a little more room because uh, pedal steel for the most part is, is more of a sustained sort of instrument which means that there's less there's there are less notes being played you know more of them more being are just being held out as opposed to new notes and more of them which gives me it just gives me more room to work on the guitar which is uh kind of what I'm looking for there and I've developed sort of a, a slow hand approach to guitar playing and I, you know I, I like to hang notes and let them take let them change color and stuff like that and, and just watch as they as they change color and if there's another guitarist playing on top of that, you minimize that effect greatly. So at the same time, I've always wanted to play with a pedal steel, so I finally got one. I don't know anybody that plays like him unless they're somebody in a cover band that's trying to sound like him. Very rhythmical, really creative, really open to the muse, and fun to work around and you know play around. He gets very unique tones in a tonal range that none of the other guitars or, or instruments have. And well, in Wolf Brothers, there aren't any other guitars uh, other than pedal steel. So, but it's just a very unique sound and unique approach. A lot of melodic moving chords and innovative single note lines. I love the way Weir keeps the groove turning inside out a new Speedway boogie.
my upbringing is more from the jazz world. My understanding of harmony and theory and stuff like that was a big benefit for me moving into this. But just seeing like some of the way that he connected certain chords together, I remember early on going like, that's kind of, that's interesting. When I was playing with Phil, we didn't do a whole lot of Bobby songs. So it's a whole lot of new material that I had to learn that I had never played before, that I'd heard before, but never sat down to, to play. And some of the tunes are pretty, pretty complex. Cooper's card is spinning. Help is swinging to and fro. Where's the dog? Lost Sailor, Saint of Circumstance, might be a few chords in there. Victim or the Crime, you know, there's, a, there's some other ones. There's some, some chords that don't just fall naturally on my tuning on the pedal steel. There's been some challenging chord inversions where I'll have to go, hmm, okay, how can I comfortably play this without contorting my body with this pedal and this lever you know and yeah there have been a few moments where it's like yeah how can i play this chord on the pedal steel i know how to play it on guitar but where can it fit comfortably on the pedal steel it's the pedal steel can kind of be a a beast It's almost as if Lost Sailor and Sane of Circumstance are rites of passage in Weir's band. Especially first charting out some of the first stuff. I think like Sailor Saint might have been like one of the first things I had to chart out when we in Rad Dog. And it was just like, whoa, like, man, this is like beautiful. I mean, like, but this is like very, you know, I want to say adult, but it was, you know, it was, you know, it was adult, <laughs> you know. She served, in the rain falling down now Rain falling down Rain falling down Rain falling down He said, yeah, you know, learn Lost Sailor, say in a circumstance. We'll try it tomorrow night. Tomorrow night. Those songs are really fucking hard, man. You know, they're, they're, <laughs> they're, and I know when I got to say in a circumstance, well, I was trying to learn it. I, I, I write it out and it's a primitive kind of chart that I make, but like just a chart where at least I could keep track of odd bars and when there's an odd time signature change. And I remember when I was trying to break the code of saying a circumstance, I was actually mad. Like, why did he have to put all this shit in it? <laughs> but once you learn it, man, once you internalize it, the it's genius, man. It's all there for a reason. And it's, and these songs 
they they kind of they roll off your fingers like melted butter. It's just so it's so easy to play. There's so many ideas you can have. There's an infinite amount of, of approaches. They become. I remember after the first tour that I did with Bobby with Wolf Brothers. When we got together the second time, I remember the first time uh, we played Lost Sailor. I had the same feeling I have when I see an old friend. Man, it was really good to see that song and play those changes again. And I really, I missed it. That's I've never experienced like a friendship with a song. going to do he's he's spontaneous in the moment and it could always change and that, that could be his guitar playing or where he sings a vocal line or you know like he might not come in singing a line where you always heard it and you expect it and he might let the music breathe for a couple measures before he comes in and that could be different every night and the same goes for his guitar playing and he's soloing more in this band than i've heard him solo before and it's really cool because he has a really unique approach that's just distinctly Bobby. Nobody else solos like that. And then some of the rhythmical stuff borders on soloing, too. It could kind of be chordal soloing with single note lines thrown in, but can work against somebody else that's soloing at the same time. We're all trying to give each other space, and especially Bob's been soloing a lot more, which has been great. He's been killing it. And just watching him, he's growing all the time still. I mean, coming out with new stuff, and when he's playing, it's like, whoa, where did that come from? You know, and I just love him just in everybody as a musician. I think, you know, the, the learning aspect of it never ends if you let it. And so you're constantly searching. There are weird solos all over the live in Colorado albums. <laughs> In early 2022, the band hit the road with a destination, Radio City Music Hall, and a pair of shows celebrating the 50th anniversary of Ace. One of those nights will be released as a bonus disc on the upcoming Ace 50 release, which we talked about extensively last time. But it wasn't all that happened that week. We had a really fun tour, all the shows leading up to Radio City, and including Radio City, so we were already in a pretty high space, so adding that to it was just a little cherry on the top. Black-throated wind Me to see. You done better by me. 
really the only preparation is we we did a rehearsal in New York at a soundstage before we set up at Radio City. And we had some of the guests come in. Two of those guests, Tyler Childers and Brittany Spencer, can be heard singing on Ace 50. But the music they made with another guest isn't out just yet. The towering jazz bassist Ron Carter, who played with Miles Davis from 1963 to 1968, which alone is enough to make him an all-timer. Don is the president of Blue Note Records. And, you know, maybe his relationship with Ron was just artist and label president in the past. I think it was cool for him to meet in the space of both of them being players. Don was super stoked to have him there. When it first came up, I was like, seriously? Because you know, obviously, I mean, I was familiar with him most of my life. I mean, and I was just, at first I was wondering, how did this happen? You know, and is, is he really going to come? You know, and then um, got confirmation he's coming. Not, not only to the gig, he's coming to the, to the rehearsal. <laughs> I was like, oh my god! So it was just, I was really excited, obviously, and it was just. Uh, but he was, God, such a nice gentleman, and obviously, look, you, you know, you can't say enough about his playing. Obviously, so it was just, uh, it was like kind of the epitome of what you thought he would be, everything you thought he would be, and more. The rehearsal, which is recorded, he also did other one. He, he came and rehearsed, and it, he was mind blowing, man. He was really, it was really something. It was a for me personally. It was a very big deal when I, you know, this bass that I played with Bobby, it's like really huge, man. It's a six fourth size bass. Most people play either three fourth size or a full size. So this is like bass and a half. And it, it's an old, it's 200 years old. So it's so big. When I bought it, I, I thought, man, I wonder what Ron Carter would say about this. Would he think this is the, the stupidest thing? Because it, it's so big, it hurts. It, it hurts my shoulder to reach around it. And it's a lot of weight to sport for a three-hour show, but it sounds really good. On the first night at Radio City, Carter took over Don's bass for a beautiful version of Dark Star that found him weaving with Weir's guitar, Comente's piano, and Sless's pedal steel. But then when it came to the actual gig, like, you know, all of a sudden he started doing some stuff before the tune even started. So it was like we got into this little improvised conversation with each other. Mostly just the two of us, you know, and it was, it was a special moment for me again. It just was like, wow, this is really happening. And then, you know, then we got into the tune, and of course he killed it, and, you know, and his whole approach of orchestration with the bass, and um, it just was really incredible. play but i'm not sure you know how much he listened to it beforehand because it was like I, all of a sudden i'm like he's looking at me and i'm like okay so i started like barking chord changes <laughs> whatever it is, and i fell and pinched myself it's like look at me i'm why am you know i'm barking chord changes at ron carter like give me a break <laughs> we did dark star so there's a lot of room for improvisation there and something that he's well acquainted with so it was kind of a, a 
a good fit in that there was plenty of room for us to stretch and go in any direction. And having his his voicings there were really cool and, and great to play off of. This wouldn't be a Weir-centric episode of the Deadcast without getting unstuck in time. Another part of Bobby Weir's story in 2022 has a slightly different arc, rooting in a different project that began life a dozen years ago. In 2010, the Marin County Symphony approached Weir about playing a benefit, and they went looking for an arranger. Symphony board member and deadhead Helen Baldovinos had heard the Stanford Marching Band's arrangements of dead songs and called the Stanford Music Department. There she found Giancarlo Aquilante, an Italian composer and professor who very much didn't have anything to do with the Stanford Marching Band's version of Dead Tunes, but took the meeting anyway. My first reaction, it wasn't really, I was not that much interested. I'm a classical musician. I do my own things. And even though I knew about the Grateful Dead, but I really didn't know much about their music. Another factor, I'm originally from Italy. I moved here when, as an adult. And I didn't grow up with that kind of music. It was a country the dead skipped entirely on their seven trips overseas. I was always was in the classical world, so I didn't know them very well. And my first reaction was, I'm not sure about this. Uh, then the more I was thinking about it, then I said, well, maybe this could be, you know, a different experience, something to open up my my. I, at the end, I said, why not? So I started to uh, work with Bob into the, um, for the first fusions. Debuted on May 7th, 2011 at the Frank Lloyd Wright Design Marin Center, First Fusion was a two-part performance. In the first half, titled Raising the Dead, we are in a selected crew of rat dog musicians joined members of the symphony and the Quartet San Francisco to play pieces including Cassidy and Birdsong. In the second half, Reinventing the Classics, Weir and the symphony played a suite that moved through some of the Dead's most expansive work, including portions of Dark Star, Playing in the Band, and The Days Between. I suddenly discovered a new world. I discovered a new world of music, something that I had, you know, I didn't know much about rock and roll. I didn't know much about um, Grateful Dead. I didn't know much about that world, period. It's amazing how much materials in the Grateful Dead songs there, there is that... It's material to be translated into this amazing ensemble of the orchestra that I did not find in other songs from other groups. So is this a coincidence that we're doing this or this is something that they, in their subconscious, they thought about it or is that a coincidence? I, I don't know. It was really quite of an amazing experience to work with Bob, who's he's very knowledgeable about music in general, not, not just in his little world of rock and roll or big world of rock and roll. So he's very knowledgeable. So um, I, I realized that there was so much to learn for me. The first fusion was really an experiment. 
we saw that it's possible. So the first fusion gave us confidence that it's possible. Now, how can we improve that? Plenty of ambitious projects have declared themselves to be volume one or the first part in a larger series. It took a few years, but we and Aqualente were serious that it was only a first attempt. We'll be listening to a few bits of the Kennedy Center performances from early October 2022 during the next segment of this episode. Far more than First Fusion, Bobby and Giancarlo hope that this will lay the groundwork for a long-running project that can move from orchestra to orchestra. Improvisation was not part of the, of the First Fusion. Improvisation was a, it was a crucial aspect in classical music. Uh, so in the Baroque time, I'm thinking about the basso continuo. I don't want to go into the details, but uh, the keyboard players was always improvising on some uh, what we call uh, figure bass. They were they had some numbers similar to what you say uh, sheet symbols today. Like you know the jazz players, they have C minor seven or D minor six, and then they improvise over those uh, symbols. In the Baroque time, there was something very similar to that. So improvisation is nothing new to classical musicians, and in particular to composers. Composers were trained to improvise their instrument, mainly the keyboard, because it's like improvisation is like brainstorming. So you sit at the piano, you kind of play, you fall around, and it could be structured or not, but it's a, it's a way to get ideas. It's basically, it's the equivalent of brainstorming. My first composition teacher, that was a crucial training. So improvisation for me, it was nothing new, but I always did it in the classical world, which today is kind of unusual. So it's unusual for classical musicians. That idea of improvisation is kind of lost, even among composers. But somehow I always um, had that in my tools. Certainly, it's possible to argue that one of the main differences between classical music and jazz is racism. The tradition of improvisation has intersected with classical music for centuries, and in more recent centuries around jazz especially. Charlie Parker regularly played with string arrangements in large ensembles, for example, and composers from Duke Ellington and Count Basie to Charles Mingus and Sun Ra and countless others have used orchestral and orchestral forms. But each had to negotiate it for themselves. This is Charlie Parker performing the seasonal classic Autumn in New York with strings in 1952. <laughs> more of a jazz rhythm section backing up strings than an orchestra, but something of how jazz and orchestras sometimes combine. But conversational music in the Grateful Dead tradition is something else. 
we've been struggle on how to how do we preserve that idea of improvisations, which is a crucial part of the Grateful Dead music. What makes them special in a way? What makes them these songs to be transformed and different and renewed every time they play it? So how we translate that into an ensemble that notoriously does not improvise. Bob and I, we've been sort of banging our head and how we're doing. So he has some crazy ideas and I say, Bob, this is not possible. And I have some crazy idea. Bob said, no, this is not part of the grateful dad. That's not how we're doing it. So we needed to find a solution somehow. So I decided that most likely among a symphony orchestra, there are going to be some musicians within the orchestra that are capable of improvising. Out of these 80 musicians, I'm sure every single major symphony orchestra in this country, they have some musicians that they come from different backgrounds. They play in classical orchestra, but they've been exposed to jazz and rock and roll. So they have some knowledge about improvisations. So we're going to leave to the conductor sort of to invite or to ask who's willing to take those sections to improvise. But here's what we meant when we said that Weir was working on his long game. We knew all along that we were going to do this. So I knew that I was shopping for uh, like five guys who could cover string parts, could cover uh, wind parts, and then lead the charge in the uh, in the orchestra when that time comes. But when that time comes, but first I needed to tour with them and and get them sort of uh, get get them and us all on the same page. And so that's what we've been doing. Bobby booked these symphony dates, and this is something that he'd been developing for 10 years. And so he, you know, he, he is primarily a disruptor. <laughs> so, so Bobby was thinking, well, why can't the orchestra solo? And of course, the answer is obvious. They're not, that's not what they do. That's not why the people who are there are there because they, they blend into they do they're anti-soloists almost. They blend into an ensemble and they can read the page well and blend so that it sounds like one unit. That's that's their skill. So standing out is almost antithetical. It's like having your back backup singer like like the Iquettes did not upstage Tina Turner. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you don't do that. Right? But he thought, all right, well, I get that, but why don't we put some ringers in the sections? Let, let's take a cello player who can solo. Let's take a violin player who can solo. Let's take a brass guy. So we auditioned five different categories, right? <laughs> and it was for the symphony shows so that people in the orchestra could solo. And we picked these five guys who... who and it was kind of cool. So they started doing these live streams with us because it added some other element. And at times it was 
chaotic and sounded more like Sun Ra than the National Symphony Orchestra. But we liked that too. So then we start we started getting away from the written orchestrations that were planned for the symphonies, and they started arranging parts. But it just kind of grew. It wasn't by design, and then we took it out on tour, and it was it was pretty nice. the other one from Live in Colorado, Volume 2. It's actually the members of the Wolfpack who've taken on the challenge of writing the charts for the band, rotating arrangement duties amongst themselves. But integrating the Wolfpack is only one part of it. One of the projects that we're working on is getting a symphony orchestra to improvise. And that's a pretty major challenge. But we have a number of techniques that we're going to employ to do that but they all involve having a, a little crew of people that we travel with who we can then seed into the audio, uh, into the orchestra, and they can sort of lead the charge in the improv sections. And for the time being, they're going to be they're going to be the guys who are going to be leading the charge on on the improvisation. At some point, we've got some more advanced techniques uh, that will get entire sections improvising of one voice, but that's going to take a little doing and, and maybe some iPads and stuff like that. But for now, just those guys, will, like, we'll seat them into the uh, orchestra and they'll they'll see what they can pull out of, during the uh, during the extended sections of the of the concerto. Um, we'll see what they can, uh, what kind of magic they can make. They're all players who have played in orchestras, but can also solo and have worked, you know, like. I think Mads, the viola player, worked with Stanley Clark. And yeah, I mean, they, they all do other things, you know. One of the ringers they're bringing along is Jeff Comenti. I'm, I'm a little concerned at having a piano involved. You know, and Jeff is a great player, but that's, you know, he's got two hands. That's a lot of notes. And you have to think that, you have to think that kind of stuff through when you're working with, uh, you know, 80, 90 pieces. I've done symphony stuff before, but the unique uh, thing about this approach is that normally it would be the symphony accompanying the band, the standard scenario. But this is more like like we're actually accompanying the orchestra. So they're taking lots of spaces to where it's like orchestra only, soloing and stuff, and and having their own solo sections, and then it may trade back and forth, or then it becomes us, you know, we're improvising in there. We're going to figure this out, too, because, I mean, it's, it's going to be ever-evolving.
As you may have imagined, Jeff has internalized the music pretty well by now. Even with the symphony stuff, I'm not actually looking at music per se. I'm looking at written roadmaps, and but I got my own notes on there, and like for so for cues or this or that, because otherwise I'd be flipping pages through the score really fast if I had to read it. I got them down to like where I'm on looking at one page per song, but I mean everything's I, I made detailed notes. We're bringing Jay, but we we're bringing bringing Jay with two kits. One of them is a is a very very quiet kit. I I rode back from D.C a number of years back, and the guy sitting next to me on the flight was uh, Tony Bennett's drummer. I just heard him the night before at, at this benefit that we did there, or a, a gig we did there, and um, he was telling me all kinds of tricks that he uses to uh, to quiet down a, a kit. A rock and roll trap drum kit, all by itself, unamplified, is twice as loud as an entire th- symphony orchestra. And so... We've had to go through some hoops to to quiet the band down and still have guys feel like they they're leaning in, into the music. Like I say, a, a rock and roll drum kit is is twice as loud as an entire symphony orchestra, unamplified. And you, you just gotta do something about that. Or or the, the symphony players will just get up and leave. They all have DB meters on their music stands, and if it gets they have to protect their ears. You don't get a second chance, uh, they'll get up and leave if it, if it gets too loud. So we have to quiet the band down, or there's no point in even trying to play with an orchestra. And so we've done that. We've put a lot of work into it. I'm not sure that you'll be able to hear from the audience the fact that uh, I'm playing through minimal amplification, um, but I'll be playing through minimal amplification. And the piano will be acoustic. You'll be you'll be hearing it acoustically. And I don't think there's going to be much uh, much. Well, it depends on what uh, which kit Jay is playing. Because if he plays his regular kit, it's really really quiet. But that might still be too loud. In which case, we've also we're also bringing electronic drums, which are pretty good these days. As a ranger. Giancarlo Aquilante is handling air traffic control. We reserved some sections in these uh, orchestrations where this pattern is repeated. And every, every single instrument has what we call the chords. You know, I inserted the chords like a jazz musician will have. You know, they have these charts with chords and symbols and... And among the orchestra player, I'm sure there's someone who understands exactly what that means. In the National Symphony, it might be the trumpet player. In some other orchestra, it might be the clarinet player. And so the result, it will be completely different each time we play those songs. going to be a connection between the band, mainly Bob, and the conductors, that these sections are going to be repeated as it is in the traditions of the Grateful Dead, until Bob says, 
time to move on. And then the conductor will communicate that to the orchestra and they will say time to move on. So will it work, will not work? We'll try, we'll see. We have a couple of key things, like there are, there are areas that are specifically designed for soloing that, that are gonna rely on nods and gestures between Bobby and the conductor as to when that section is over. So there, there are some, some things that will just keep going on until we say it, we're done. And there are other things where you absolutely can't do that and you have to, you have to play it as written. The first fusion did not have these improvisation sections, but this time they will help. And also, we have many more songs. So I orchestrated about 20 songs so far. The 20 songs generated 650 pages of orchestral score. So we're talking this much. And when it translated, so when you generate the parts for the single instrument, we're talking, I can't remember, five, four or 5,000 pages of music. At the same time, as in the dead traditions, I tried to add something because these songs were transformed through the years dramatically. So the way we see it in this orchestration is a further transformations. So it's a continuation of these songs to be transform through the years. Helen or Bob, they will send me all kinds of different versions, old versions, and oh, this is what this is, was in the 60s, this is what we did in the 70s, this was in the 80s, and so I would listen to all of them. And in order to formulate some ideas, it was not just a mere listening. I really need to go inside the music. I need to go into the really the mechanics of the music, how these chord progressions are set, how do they work, and how these improvisations are based on that chord progression. Why is Jerry Garcia is doing this, using this sort of uh, uh, pattern here, and then in the 70s, this was different, and then later on, hey, that pattern kind of changed. respect for any person knowing the music of the Grateful Dead, I really was not just listening and say, oh, this is a beautiful song, I really like it. I really had to go inside the music as, as a Stanford professor, I would say, you know, I really need to analyze it, not just, oh, it's so beautiful, there are two verses and listen, I really like that, that... <laughs> That doesn't do anything in music. Yeah, I really needed to understand the mechanics, the chord progression, the melodic lines, 
and how are they connected? Like I would do it with a, a Mozart, uh, like the analysis that you would do of a Mozart symphony or a Beethoven symphony. We go inside and say, why did he write this note? And why is that? And why is that? So once you understand that, then I said, how can I make it my own? The introductions of, of the other one. So the main melody, I use the main melody to have an orchestral interlude at the beginning, and I created a, a, a fugue out of it. So an old technique kind of lost within composer of writing fugues. So I used some ideas from the Grateful Dead. I get those ideas and I built a fugue around it for an orchestral uh, part. Or I would take, I would take some ideas from Jerry Garcia's improvisations, you know, I will find some patterns that he might be using in different songs or something that we're recurring. So I figure he must have been attached to that. And I would use these, again, either to write a fugue or to write an interlude bass. That will be my main theme that will be transformed, modified, harmonized differently, and you name it things that we do in classical music. does the song go? They've been trained that way. The band trained the audience in a certain way and they follow it. Now that songs evolving into something else is expected. They don't want to hear the song the same way. If they play three concerts, they want to hear and they play the same song those three nights, they want to hear it differently. That's how the, the deadhead audience has been trained. And that's now, it, it's a feature of the band. We need a lot of rehearsal and more than the orchestra can, can give us. We get two days with them in, the, in uh, D.C. So the arranger made these MIDI files for us of synthesizers playing all the parts, but at least it enabled us to get concrete versions of the forms of the songs. Because the one thing that's really different uh, certainly at this stage of the game, is the verse has to start at a bar 72, <laughs> not 73, not 83, not 52. So like with us, you know, when Bobby starts singing the second verse, that's when we start playing it. But we, don't, we can't do that with an orchestra. So th that required a lot of rehearsal. And, and I'm really impressed by with Bobby's uh, work ethic and learning these arrangements and and being able to stick to them that required a tremendous amount of discipline and a whole lot of work and he's worked really hard at it much harder than i have because no one's going to notice if i miss <laughs> the way we rehearse i have midi files you know the computers generates the midi files of these orchestrations so that's what we have for now we you know we don't have a real orchestra to 
rehearse. And so they were playing over these melodies. So I had to stop them and I say, guys, you know, here you really need to play softer because there is the English one and the bass clarinet using some ideas that I took from Jerry Garcia's and I used it here because I think it fits and it's Dark Star. So I'm using this low clarinet. I'm using the bass clarinet. I'm using the English horn because it's a dark sound. So you need to respect that. You need to, that needs to bring out because it's like bringing Jerry Garcia's soul alive again here. So that's how I envisioned all these orchestrations. He really wants to disrupt the tradition, some traditional aspects of the orchestra and introduce improvisational elements. It's not without precedent. Uh, in the old, you know, hundreds of years ago, orchestras would play pieces that weren't necessarily finished because the composers were still alive and, and they would improvise. They, they, if the if the composer hadn't gotten to the end, but they were trying out a piece, they'd just figure out a way to get out of it. So it, it, there's some historical precedence for it, but it's, it's really not done in modern times. But Bobby's got this whole thing involving iPads for the whole orchestra and color coding. He's looking to change music with this. I think that that that's, I think that's fifty percent of the of his uh, interest in this. It's it's to it's to change things, and I think the other fifty percent is. Well, look, I, I just turned seventy, right, and, and Bobby's five years older than me. And at this age, man, you understand the limitations of your active playing time, you know, op, you know, optimistically you got 15 years, which flies by at this, at this point in time. And I think Bobby's concerned about serving the songs and making sure that the songs survive all of us, you know, that they, they keep going. And, and he's very interested in, finding ways to keep the music alive, to keep it fresh and alive. And, and doing it with orchestras is is one way of doing it. I think these shows at the Kennedy Center, well, I, th well, I think they'll, they'll be good. And, and this, it's certainly high adventure for us. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's just to start. I'd love to incorporate the pedal steel, but that's, that's there are too, too damn many strings now. We've got to, it's just too busy. I'm thinking we may try to... Uh, we may try to work the pedal steel in for, we're, we're booked again in the winter, I guess. And uh, we may try to work the pedal steel in at that point. But uh, first we need to, you know, one foot at a time. We'll keep it rolling. We'll keep, I've got a, a couple of MIDI guitars at this point, and uh, I'm going to, I'm getting up to speed on them so I can actually write. Otherwise, I can't write music. But now, if you play a MIDI guitar into, uh, you play a line on a MIDI guitar, it'll it'll write that out for you. I'll be working with Giancarlo, I think, and uh, my my 
orchestrator and uh and we'll be the idea is to get uh we have like 20 songs worked up now and it's going to take uh four nights to play them all so uh they're all fairly lengthy pieces and by the time we get on stage again we'll have a bunch of new songs I, it, my plan is we'll have a bunch of new songs and so you'll never be able to tell what songs you'll ne you're never going to know what songs you're getting until you get there just like uh just like a, a, a dead show and there's going to be considerable a considerable amount of improvis improvisation as well we're looking to really bring something to uh to classical music that is not known for bobby weir's long game extended back a few years building a band that accommodated classical players with deeper improv chops but the game is even longer than that as we were preparing this episode i read an obituary of sue mingus who for decades tended to the legacy of her late husband the genius composer and bassist charles mingus keeping both the mingus big band and the Mingus Orchestra running in tandem to showcase different parts of his musical world. Between Dead & Company, Wolf Brothers, The Wolf Pack, and unnamed orchestras to be named later, I have no interest in counting how many parallel threads of the Dead's legacy we are tending to. But suffice it to say, a lot of strands. We're not real concerned about what people are saying about the next bunch of gigs. My major considerations when I'm when I'm when I'm trying to decide this or that with the music is what are people going to think about it or going to be saying about it in two or three hundred years? We'd like to thank our guests in this episode, Bobby Weir, Jeff Comenti, Don Was, Barry Sless, and Giancarlo Aquilanti. Extra special thanks to friend of the dead cast, David Gans, for contributing audio from his interview archive. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to like and subscribe, and keep your tour stories coming by recording yours over at stories.dead.net. Executive producers for the good old Grateful Dead cast, Mark Pincus and Doran Tyson. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mahan Productions and Jesse Jarno. Special thanks to David Lemieux. All rights reserved.